Welcome, everyone. My name is Jack Rico, and he's Mike Sargent. And he is brown, and I'm black. And this is the Brown and Black Podcast, a show about seeing race in media and entertainment through a brown and black lens. Well, Mike, uh, we've made it through, what, the seventh episode of this podcast? I know, I know, but you've been going through hell, have you not? I have. So you and I have been talking about my issues with my computer the last week. Can I be honest with you? Everything really started when I was trying to move over my website from one hosting server to another hosting server. Now, by the way, people who don't understand digital code language, it's hard to do this stuff by your own. But every time you hire someone, man, they charge you so much money to do it that you're like, you know what? I'll just try and learn anyway because <laughs> I totally it's, feel it's you, right. cheaper, <laughs> one. And two, it's actually good to be learning about digital code language, especially as we get older. One of the things I learned at Montclair when I was teaching a class was that from a teacher's perspective, you need to prepare your students to compete not with other people. You need to teach your students to compete with AI, artificial intelligence, because that's where it's going to. I'm not sure if you recently heard about this. Didn't you send it to me? Somebody sent it to me about how Hollywood just signed a $70 million AI robot yes. to lead a movie. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Which is clearly the plot of at least two other films that I can think of. The Constitution is one of them with Robin Wright Penn. Yes, and the movie Simone with Al Pacino. That's right. Simone with Al Pacino, right? Mm-hmm. So what we're talking about, this whole idea of AI, it's, it's, not, it's not that far away. It's actually, it's kind of like here already. So I'm really curious to see what the box office... They've tried doing this stuff before, but... My my point is is that I've had to somehow rearrange the way I look at my future and my future is me competing with AIs. So <laughs> it's good to know about this stuff. Anyway, you know, you mentioned two things I thought you were going to say that you didn't say. I do think it's important to consistently be learning, especially as you get older, like to consistently push yourself like you know, my dad is over 80 years old and he has an iPhone and he takes pictures, he texts, he, he'll send. And, and I've had friends go, oh, my God, I can't even get my dad, to my mom to, to, to even answer her phone. Your dad texted you? I can't imagine not learning something new ongoingly. And it's kind of exciting to learn new stuff. It's like, oh, so that's how you do it. And then you kind of just share it with your wife, your friends. It sounds like a cliche, but you know, my feeling about cliches is that the older you get, the more you realize cliches aren't cliches. They're actually pieces of wisdom, but knowledge is power. Mm. You know, like right. after a while, if you didn't learn it, remember VCRs? Like it was just bizarre. Yeah. Like how could you even, uh, how do they, we've abandoned formats that people don't even understand how they worked. Okay. <laughs> you mean like Betamax? Well, Betamax CDs. Who who could explain how a CD works? Okay. Nobody, it's like it spins. Dude, do you work. remember the laser discs? I remember all the of it. massive vinyl record looking CDs to play a movie. And we had to get the massive laser disc player. I mean, it was all so expensive. And then they sold you the golden vinyl cd laser disc collector's edition i was that guy first of all i did that i didn't have the laser disc i had this other there was other some other kind of disc that came out but i 
have a lot of abandoned digital formats. They had something called DCC. I don't remember that. It was Digital Compact Cassette. No. Yes, they abandoned that. I had DAT, which is Digital Audio Tape. DAT, I yeah, was, Digital Audio Tape. I was tape. big on yeah. DAT. They abandoned that format. Uh, I had Mini Disc. Mini Disc. I was big on Mini Disc. I had the Mini yeah, Disc. Yeah, they, they abandoned that format. <laughs> I had the I, Floppy Disc. Dude, I had so many formats they abandoned. I had Beta. They abandoned Beta. You know, it's like, so I'm just saying, I have a graveyard of abandoned formats i'm glad that you're back to the land of the living because going through computer hell i think anybody can relate to so mike two big stories have come out this week one of them having to do with technology and the youth that, and how they're using this energy in this moment to create political and social change. And the other story is about Damon Lindelof, who was the creator of the new Watchmen on HBO. Um, it's, it, it's essentially a black Watchmen that this white man is telling. And the question is, what is the role of white storytellers with black and brown stories? Should they be allowed to tell those stories? Politics and economic power are the only ways to really change the structure and the culture of, of a society. Then you really have to ask yourself, why aren't we all social activists? Isn't it our part of our civic duties to a certain extent to go ahead and be, you know, at least part-timely active in changing policies and protesting, yeah, almost like if you go to the movies and you go to the restaurants and you go to the museums and you travel and you spend all that time doing those leisure recreational things, you're doing it because you need to escape the ugly reality of your work, your job, sometimes your marriage, you know, your the drudgery, your, your whole life. The yeah, exactly. So you then at some point say to yourself, "How come you're? Can you take maybe?" not that trip or maybe not go to the museum that day and kind of go volunteer, help out a community, do something for your community. But people don't want to do that. You know why? Especially in a place like New York, because of wealth and what wealth does, it, it numbs you, it desensitizes you from the reality. It puts you in a bubble and you cannot, you can no longer empathize with other people. Having this time in quarantine has made, I think for a lot of people, Look at it as fate, God, whatever you want. But it's interesting, the things that have come into focus during this time that never would have, that have been going on for a long time, that people were actually able, had the time to focus on, and the wherewithal. The biggest difference today is we all have access to information. You said something earlier about shouldn't we all be part of social change? I think the reality is we never considered it, but the thing that's changed us is technology. And, you know, com yeah. coming back to AI, uh, just like anything else, anything that becomes permeating into the culture, the powers that be want to control. YouTube was free, but then, okay, people are watching it. We're going to throw ads in there. We're going to curate it. We're going to tell you what's next in your feed. We're going to make you look at this. Ads, they've advanced because of AI and algorithms and things. At this point, you and I, if we talk right now and your phone is hearing me guaranteed something we talk about more than once is going to show up in the next ad that we cite yeah show man up on. that's a whole other like conversation about privacy and data uh, and it is how that and who that affects more than anybody else exactly you know? but i'm saying what i'm putting forth is that technology 
is what is changing us. And AI, I think there's a good reason why Google and the other company abandoned their AI projects. They had to because, again, the cliche, Jeff Goldblum, just because we can doesn't mean we should. What does that have to do with Jeff Goldblum? He said that in um, oh, Jurassic said- Park. In <laughs> Jurassic Park. Don't you remember Jurassic <laughs> Park? Um, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done, and you, and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well, I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. I totally understand what you're saying. Like, you know... In terms of distractions, baseball is coming back. It's officially, like, supposedly has been announced, even though that the players are planning on filing a grievance. They're going to be playing 60 games. Here's the big issue about baseball and the MLS coming back and the NBA coming back and the NFL coming back. More than all of them, COVID is the big, big ruler here. This is the one... That isn't going to allow any of these things to go smoothly. Look, what I found out in the last three, four months is that I can live without sports. I don't need sports. So to get a half-washed baseball season that I don't even really watch anyway, it seems like it's less about the viewers and the players needing to get paid and the owners trying to get some money through the TV ratings. But these are all going to be distractions. All of them are going to be distractions. The movie theaters trying to reopen up. The restaurants trying to reopen up. Yes, it's capitalism. Yes, it's all businesses and everybody needs to make money. But we also need to change the way our normalcy was because it wasn't working clearly. And so how do we do that when all of these new stimulants are coming back? Do we accept them with the same fervence that they once had? Dude, I used to watch, it's like the Knicks were playing and then the Giants were playing and the Yankees were in the playoff. And I just felt like, don't talk to me. I'm going to be here all day just watching this. If you have a country doing that, doing the Black Lives Matters movement, that movement is dead on the spot. So it's going to be really interesting to see how people react to all of these things coming back with a sense of just making money off of them. I think that that's an amazing point. I'm clearly the wrong guy because I'm not a big sports guy. So you don't ask me because I'll, my answer is not going to be maybe the popular one. But I do think it really comes down to what perspective have we gained during this time about our individual lives and then the life, the culture, the way we have things set up. Here's what's really hitting me hard this week. Uh, looking, and again, I always have the science fiction point of view. I'm just looking at the world. Look at what humans are doing now. But the idea in this country that, and not just this country, because I don't know if you saw those photos of the beach in the UK where they called it appalling. I mean, 
No masks. In the area I live in, I went out a few days ago, mm-hmm. nobody's wearing a mask. Interestingly enough, the conscious people, the Black Lives Matter protesters, most of them were wearing masks. It's all these other folks, and it's not just the Trump supporters that aren't wearing masks, but the fight, they consider it a moral imperative to not wear a mask. You know, fuck other people's lives. Fuck the fact that people will die. It's a mentality that's been sold and bought by people that no i'm not going to wear my it's not i'm not looking at a bigger picture i'm not going to have any perspective i'm going to stay in my bubble and i want to go out without a mask and i'm going to try and barge into your store without a mask to hell with you you know if, if you really look at it it sounds more like people are becoming suicide bombers it, that's what i'm saying it's like they're, they're metaphorically suicide bombers yes. like they walk into a store Start coughing on people. Right. You might as well be just be, you know, suiting up on a fest and blowing everybody up because everybody's going to die from that. I'll go further to say in a society where money has replaced faith and spirituality, people do not aspire for spiritual transcendence. They aspire to have money. And if that's all you care about, this is the world we live in where people give in to like, it's more important for me to be able to go to the bar and spend my money than to save the lives of my older relatives and people around me and people I don't know. To hell with that. It's my life and is all that's important. I think that that's part of the country and the DNA of the country we live in. It's the DNA of a capitalist society. You know, what happens when you're born into a national model that rewards profit over spirituality? Right. Over morals, right. over values. Exactly. What happens when you're born into that? You become a product of your environment. White people being born in the 80s or the 90s, they don't, they're not hearing, hey, by the way, you have to hate black people. They're not hearing that. It's almost through osmosis, they're receiving all this information subconsciously, understanding that it's like a code. It's like you don't talk about it, but you act upon it. And I cannot blame. People for looking at things from a profit view when your whole country's uh, the infrastructure and business model is based on it, you know. And so that to me is the counter argument. And how do you how do you swaddle both, Mike? Because look, if you don't want any of that profit machine to happen, any of these distractions to be creating, you know, money and get out of the country, right? Then we shouldn't be living in the United States. I don't think that. Making money, being rich, being wealthy, and having no moral fortitude has to be exclusive from each other. You know, something you said earlier that I want to come back to that I feel is important, because you were talking about shouldn't we want to be part of what makes a change, being part of social activism? I think what happened at Trump's rally, the fact that teenagers all kept this from their parents, but they can't even vote, but they were active and did something that the adults could never have pulled off. Because it was kept on the down low within their community. All teenagers knew about it. All K-pop fans knew about it. But they used technology to spread the word and then punked the president. (laughs) I think that's significant. Well, it's tremendously significant. I think what's happening with the TikTok generation or the K-pop fans is a phenomenon that honestly has taken me by surprise. Usually what you see from TikTok and K-pop fans is a certain almost aggression cult-like fascination obsession 
with their own celebrities. You know, they become like the official stands, club presidents of of the of, of the fan clubs of of these. And and when you start noticing the multitude of people that are surrounded by that, you always ask yourself, is like, okay, what would happen if an army like that, millions and millions strong, were to use that same power for political activism? And something has happened since the Black Lives Matter movement uh, occurred earlier in March, where it reached its sort of pinnacle with the George Floyd death, is that you started seeing people kind of awaken from this fantasy, right? From this like dreamlike state of what America and the world was. And they started noticing that they do have a certain power and that their age isn't going to restrict them from exercising it. Yes. And so what we've seen is they're using their smarts, their technical and digital smarts, their understanding of algorithms and that digital native language that they were born to, and now using it against this older establishment. And by the way, you know, you, you said this not too long ago, democracy is a sham. That whole constitution seems like it was meant for just whites and not blacks, right? So when you look at a sham like that, you're, you're dealing with an archaic way of, of perceiving America. And I'm not saying that you need to blow up the Constitution and rewrite it, but what it needs to happen is you, we need to change it from the ground up. We need to make amendments. We need to, we need to make changes. And I think that these kids, through protesting, through social war, warfare – Remember you were talking about how the battle is really Dude, this is the battle we're in it right now. This is like the battle the battlefield is that, different. That was one battle that was won. And it was won in a with very strategic battle plan that the enemy, which is, you know, the corporatocracy, had no idea was gonna hit them. So I just feel like what's next now? If these kids are, let's say, sixteen, seventeen years old, fourteen to, to, to seventeen years old, at eighteen they're eligible to vote. So what you're going to see in the next two to three years, you know, in the next four years, is these kids that already have some sort of political activist experience, that they're going to understand the value of voting and the value that they have, the power collectively that they have, to actually change structural laws that would benefit us instead of hindering us. Here's my prediction. My prediction yeah. is that, A, I agree with you, the future and the youth of today, like Obi-Wan Kenobi, they're our only hope. But, <laughs> but um, what they did is they use the technology against those who created it or think that they control it. There's like a fool me once kind of mentality. <laughs> it's like, all right, you know, they're not going to have you sign up without a checkbox that say if you're over 18 anymore to get tickets for a rally. They're, they're like, okay, we can't do that a second time. But here's the danger. You saw that documentary, Slay Slaying, the Slaying the Dragon. And what they use in that documentary is they use AI to figure out every possible scenario so that when they do the redlining and the gerrymandering, that they will make sure that they win no matter what. But, but they, hold on a second. But that, that gerrymandering has been going on since the early 1900s where the United States started redrawing absolutely complete like lines of neighborhoods where banks weren't available to give them any loans or anything which is kind of what the movie the banker talks yes. about 
with Sam Jackson that I think it's an Apple TV. You could probably watch it for free. I highly recommend it. You're absolutely correct. TikTok's been out there for however long. The social media's been out there for however long, but it's never been used in this way. So the same yes. So the same thing. Uh-huh. It's the innovation and the evolution of how it's approached. And how technology impacts. Back in the day, you might have had to write in or who knows, call in or reserve. Who knows what you would have had to do? Go to a store, a local store and pick up a ticket. But now it's all technology. How can that be co-opted? In the case of gerrymandering, by applying AI to an already corrupt system, you're able to outthink your opponent which is what the Republicans did 10 years ago and allowed to continue. Here's where we're going to be in two years. In two years with this whole mail-in voting, mail-in voting is going to change the face of voting forever because it just means they're going to have to find another way to screw with it. And mailing, my prediction when this election comes, is going to be tons of ripping up and lost stuff that was in the mail, votes that were never counted. This is going to be an ugly Oh, election. it's going to be a very I ugly election. I can feel it. I can feel it to my bones, man. No doubt. But- Here's the deal. We have to move to being able to vote online. We have to move there. There's just no way not to. Yeah, but that can be hacked. There is no safe way of doing it unless you're doing it in person. But with the pandemic dude, and with the mail-in voting not working and us being hacked in the last election and essentially... It's coming. It has to come. It's got to come. It's got to come. Listen, you cannot tell me that there is no company in the world that cannot create an unhackable system for voting. Bullshit. Bullshit. And nuclear weapons have to have technology that can't be hacked. All right? So I'm sorry. The technology, <laughs> you know, it's just not, we're not talking about nuclear disaster. We're talking about winning elections, okay? The fuck? And, and this one more than anything, man, I hope it doesn't become the Bush-Gore 2000 where oh, it's, you know. Oh, it's going to be contentious, and he's not going to want to leave. They're going to have to pull and, his And by the out. way, we're not, we're not going to know in November. Uh, I think it's November oh. 3rd, November 6th. Uh, we're not going to know. It's going to take a week to two weeks to find out who the president's going to be. Easily. There's going to be Just back and forth. They're going to talk about forth. a revote. There's going to be all kinds of stuff. We all know this. <laughs> I'm expecting it already. That's why I'm not going to go to any parties. I'm not going to. I'm just going to stay home. Parties. What? Well, they, 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 parties. You know, well, you know, like virtual social distancing parties for the election. You know, they always invite you. To That's back. like ridiculous. But okay. And all I'm going to say is that my prediction is to use the word, I love this word, this election will be a fiasco. All right? <laughs> and then I predict two years from now, when things change, like you said, the, those 18-year-olds that are the 16, 17-year-olds become 18, there's going to be a push to change the way we vote. There are all these systems, just like qualified immunity, that have been in place for years, but people never really looked at it. We're looking at shit now. We're definitely That's looking at That's the only now. reason things are changing. to talk to you about you know that gone with the wind is coming back 
<laughs> with context. Now, yes. With context on HBO Max. Of course. It's got to say, this uh, is a bullshit fantasy, but enjoy. And I'm like, guys, why are we still talking about this? I think everybody thinks that all of a sudden we've all thought that Gone with the Wind was this race. I never thought of that. Honestly, I thought it was the depiction of the times. No. Every not at all. single decade that you see there is an imp- a cultural social history that's imprinted on that decade. And when you watch a movie there, it's almost like watching history unfold, you know? These are stories that were being told like is somebody going to say that the drawings on a cave back in the, you know, beginning of, you know, human civilization that somehow they might be racist because they didn't include I think there's there needs to be there needs to come at some point where you go look that is who we used to be. No one's glorifying those movies anymore, but th- that's that's how life used to be. That's not how life is now. Look at the movies that have counter uh, or, or defied it or, or counter argued its premise and 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 sort of told the story of today. I never really truly had a problem with Gone with the Wind and and a lot of these race Birth of a Nation. So. If we were to put the lens on every single movie that was ever made by anyone, you will find some sort of slight against a particular gender of people, against an ethnicity of people. Every time we tell a movie, you can't include everybody because it's not natural. I have to say I only partially agree with you and I disagree with you quite a bit because here's what I will say. I agree that... The art that springs from a culture speaks about the culture it springs from. That's clear. And movies are stories. They're stories that are either contemporary in that time. They're they're retellings of the past. They're stories that resonate with the culture in general. Absolutely. Like Oklahoma on Broadway. They reinvented it for the times. But, and this is a huge, huge, huge but, film, stories. And this is what I was talking about on that show last week. Propaganda, okay, The problem with Gone with the Wind, Birth of a Nation, many, many films over the last hundred years made by white filmmakers. Oh, John Ford, you know, was probably one of the best directors in propagating the white savior, white supremacist America. What I'm saying is film is at its core a form of propaganda. I mean, if you're not religious, you're going to look at the Bible that way. These are stories that are propaganda to change people and resonate with them. But the bottom line is context. What you said before is also true, that we need to have learned about these things. If you have no understanding of the real history, you will take these movies to be fact. You will think people were happy to be slaves. You will think that all Latinos <laughs> are drug dealers. Oh if, if you No, I'm serious. You're absolutely right. If you look at TV throughout the 80s, every Latino was dealing drugs. If you watch Miami or a Vice. a gang member, you know, West Side Story. Exactly. For, for 30, 40 years, that was the, the, a Latino. That's what they were. If, that's if they had a, a line in a movie. And then there was the occasional Latin lover or the, the sexy Latina. I mean, there are a couple of archetypes. Black men are known to be sexually great and have large penises. Okay, I'm not so bad with that stereotype. But again, <laughs> <laughs> but, but again it's still... Sliding that yeah, one I'll slide, you know, Okay, well, I'll, you know, you can keep that one. All right, but I'm just saying, you know, these stereotypes 
permeate these stories. And let's not even talk about Native Americans. You probably count on one hand the amount of films come out of Hollywood that were actually respectful to Native Americans. But the whole history of how this quote-unquote country came to be from the film standpoint is utter propaganda utter propaganda and 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 we know this and and the question is you know obviously doesn't work now and yes we should give uh, Nagan with the wind its context for today's generation so they can understand it but no one's going to think of gone with the wind as a 2020 movie that's continuing to promote that propaganda of racism in our country it's seen more as a historical museum piece (sighs) something you look at history back in the day and you go see huh son that's how life used to be but now you look at a movie like moonlight right that wins the uh the oscar or, or is nominated for best picture And now we start seeing movies that actually are created by blacks, uh, by Latinos like Guillermo del Toro, et cetera, et cetera. And they're setting the example of what storytelling is today. But why punish museum pieces of the past? I mean, I'm going to tell you why, because you just said it. Okay, here's what you said. You didn't say that's how they used to represent things you said that's how life used to be the essence of trump's campaign is make america great remember when it was great you know why they called it happy days because there were no fucking black people you look at happy days no black <laughs> they were happy Yo, is that real oh, i'm kidding i'm kidding i'm just saying oh, but i'm just <laughs> saying but if you watch happy days they were really happy without any black people all right those happy days all right i'm just saying <laughs> I'm just saying that that the reason to, and I wouldn't say punish. Again, I come back to contextualize. I think the reason to do that is because it is very easy for a parent to say, look, this is how it used to be. Black people were happy. They knew their place. When you look at the first film ever made and you look at the last film ever made, how are we going to take the inventory of all of that and discern it? And who, who's going to be the task committee that's going to discern what the problems and what context we need to add to each film. Dude, this, you can't do that. It's just, it's too much. So by selecting a couple of, you know, films, is that going to do enough yes. to change yes. storytelling uh, today? All right, here's what I think, okay? I don't know if it'll change storytelling today, and I have to say I got slightly distracted by the title, The Last Film Ever Made. Like, I see that, like, it's the end of the world, somebody's going to make that last movie. <laughs> but I, I don't think it's going to change storytelling today, but I think... That what it can do is, again, contextualize for people to understand that, okay, these are stories. These are fictionalized. These are fictionalized accounts that, you know, again, I don't think we have to go so far like you have to put a warning on a James Bond movie. This is a male fantasy. Women don't do this. I don't think you have to do that. But I think at the same time, especially iconic powerful films that people will watch without any context and think certain things film has a lot of power it's the king of all media it is so we know the type of of power that it has it is so without any kind of controls like there had been for many years i mean if you look at films with black characters in the 40s and 50s it's not pretty so you really without any kind of legislation without any kind of guidance without any kind of rules without any kind of accountability you can tell whatever stories you want forever the black character will always die saving the white character. (laughs) The 
one place that it doesn't happen, and this is the other topic I wanted to talk to you about, is that uh, HBO, about well, a week ago, they decided that they were going to put out Watchmen for free for people to watch. So you don't have to pay for it. You can just watch the whole series. You know, out of their whole library, I think they, Watchmen is now available to anyone to download and, and just watch. And so my wife and I have been watching it. And bro, can I tell you, first of all, the show I think was produced and aired in the fall of last year. And it didn't really have a lot of pickup until Black Lives Matter movement you know, uh, emerged again. And now it has a whole completely m- different meaning than what it was before. You know, the, the, the power of resonance of connection to what's happening in the, in the story and to what's happening in reality is so close to the truth. It's, it's actually, it feels like it's, they produced it as they were going through the weeks and months of COVID and, and, and Black Lives Matter movement. It, it's, it's a sequel of the show. But it really talks about police brutality, systemic racism, and it does it in a way that is so, so real that honestly, I I think it's probably the best show I've seen in all of 2020 so far. What I love and what's meta about it is that, like I said, it's a sequel to the movie and the comic book series, which is very famous, which, you know, was flawed, but I like the movie. Damon Lindelof who was the one who developed this story, found out about the Tulsa massacre, and it blew his mind. And you know where he found out about it? He had read an article in The Atlantic by ta Coates called The Case for Reparations. Right. And it was there that he learned about the Tulsa massacre, but then he, he learned about a bunch of other stuff, yes. and he kind of became obsessed with retelling the story, which is something I wanted to talk to you, Mike. For me, what I really took out of Damon Lindelof essentially creating this new black watchman. And as I'm looking at it, the question that that arose to me was, should white creators, white storytellers, have the right to tell black or minority stories? On the one hand, I have issue with filmmakers who have literally made their careers on telling quote-unquote black stories. I have issue with it. I have some very specific filmmakers and and films in mind that particularly I do not like, particularly for that whole like, and here is the black in his native, you know, like that whole anthropological thing. I'm not a fan. But at the same time, as an artist, I think that it is the artist's job to make society wake up, to make society look itself. I think that it's not a question of whether or not a white creator should be able to create black characters. I think it really comes down to the inclusion context of really understanding of not just going off and everybody involved is white. You create it and all the directors are white and all the producers are white. I have an issue with that. So I think you have to get in that context and feedback from other creators of color when you're going to do something like that. That's one. Two, I also think the other answer to your question is that it shouldn't be that only they have the ability to do it, you know, and that's been the issue. I think that's, to me, the answer Mm -hmm. is that you can do it, but as much research as you can do, like when Pixar decided to do Coco, that was not directed by a Latino man. Right. I think it's Fredo Molino is his name, the co-director. He was brought in afterwards and i always felt that that seemed kind of suspicious you had a white man in directing the film produced by a white woman 
and there were no Latinos involved until they brought in Mr. Molina to be the co-director. And I felt that that was tokenism there. Well, let's give this guy a credit. We are talking about all Mexicans, you know, and having it come from a white guy. It ended up winning the Oscar for Best Animated Film. And then I, ha- I had to submit myself to see A.O. Scott from the New York Times write a <laughs> review about Mexican children and a Mexican story coming from a white guy from the New York Times. And I remember on Twitter, people were like, where are the Latino film critics talking about Coco? There weren't any. That's part of the problem, that, that bubble, that closed circuit. And it's been like this for a long time. It's clearly changing in the last few years. Only a Spielberg or a Jonathan Demme can get an Armistad or a Beloved or a Color of Purple made for a long time. Even if the, the original source material came from an Alice Walker, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning novel, it's still only a white filmmaker that had the ability to tell that story. That is repugnant to me, man. I agree. That they're in control of the way all other stories from all other cultures are told if they're going to remake west side story years later how come only a white filmmaker is the one to do that i've been criticizing this so much and i love spielberg but there are too many institutions that are run by white people that profit off of the cultural appropriation of hispanics of blacks of asians indians right because they're the only ones that have access to the wealth to the resources tools in order to make a successful business, build wealth. But hey, you know, I got the idea. I want to put you guys to work. I'm giving back to you. I have to deconstruct that for you, man. Because there's a lot of colonial thinking that happens in situations like this. And honestly, I enjoyed very much this Black Watchmen version. I really enjoyed it. And if you would have told me, you know, Jordan Peele did it, I would have like almost believed you. But I need someone to tell me if that is fully clearly wrong, or is that clearly right for him to do that? Here's what I will say. What is right is that he didn't only bring in white writers. Now, are they primarily, or at least more than 50%? Yes. But he did bring in a number of black writers on it. Because he brought in black writers, he also brought in some black cinematographers. He brought in... I get it, Mike. But if they're the only ones that are able to tell their white stories, and now they're going to have a slice of telling yep. black stories yep. and telling Latino stories and telling Asian stories, at what point are we making any fucking change? At some point, you got to say, hey, dude, stay in your lane and allow us to be the showrunner of the Black Watchmen that we want to do. Regina King was like, oh, you know, he's such a great collaborator. He brought me in. I don't want to hear that. I want to hear, you know what? Damon Lindelof had this great idea, but he decided to step aside and executive produce the show and allow a showrunner, a Black showrunner, like a Jordan Peele, to go in and create his version while he collaborates with Damon. But Damon wrote it. Damon created it. Damon showruns it. Damon is a part of every part of this Black Watchmen process. And my question is, isn't there something wrong in this white man deciding to now that he's woke to tell this black story? By the way, it's blacks against whites. It's from the angle of blacks. The lead is Angela, which is Regina King. 
And in this case, the whites are the villains. It's almost like they're shown as Nazis, dude. The Ku Klux Klan is the American Nazis of the world. Well, here's what I would say. Is it completely wrong? Absolutely not completely wrong. Why? And I'll tell you why. I, I think the only way for change to happen is, for instance, Damon's executive producer, right? It's him and four other people. One of those people, of those five, is a black guy. Okay, he's a Jamaican-Canadian film and television director. One, he had worked with Lindelof back on Lost, but hopefully that means he will be able to move up and be able to be in a position to create things. But the gatekeepers are the gatekeepers. They're not going to leave. They just have to open the gates. So that's the only way for the gates to be open, and there's got to be change. That's, there's no doubt, and it needs to be ground up, no doubt. But I don't think this is completely wrong because at this point, the most important part about this is that white people see this. Black people know about the Tulsa massacre, especially educated black people. Now, a lot of black people didn't know about it either, but the people who really need to understand that this happened, this is part of the country's history, are white people, especially those white people that are going to get on social media and say, I'm going to teach all my kids to hate you, you know, whatever it is. Those are the kind of people that need to see this and go, oh, well, maybe they have a point. Maybe black lives do matter. Some kind of moment. Well, that's it for the seventh episode of Brown and Black. Next week, Mike and I will be discussing the oppression of black and brown music in English language mainstream radio. And if you'd like to support our show and would like to check us out, please subscribe and leave a review. Also, if you want to reach us, you can reach us on Twitter at Brown Black Pod. And you can also reach us on Instagram on Brown Black Podcast. Thank you and see you next week on another episode of Brown and Black.